listening to a message from Red Church in Melbourne, Australia. If you'd like to know more about Red or its ministries, please go to redchurch.org.au. Well, uh, good morning, everybody. How are you going? I think is how you say it. We say, how, how, how are you doing? Or how's it going? But we almost speak the same language. Um, but we actually finish the entire word. We don't shorten every... <laughs> Third word. Somebody showed me that, like, uh, did you, how to speak Australian. Have you seen that little YouTube video? Oh, my gosh. You just, like, I thought it was a joke, but apparently it's not. It's, <laughs> it's all true. Anyway, um, I know I start off with insulting you. I actually really love you and your country and your culture and your beautiful city. Um, so thank you for the invite. It's great not only to get out of winter in the northern hemisphere, but it's also great just to really be with you. And I think our our churches have some kind of a link in the spirit of God and in what God's on about in the kingdom, and such a, such a joy to come and visit you. If you have a Bible, please turn to Psalm 24. Psalm 24. And I just have a very simple word that, as I've been praying, you know, it's weird when you come as a guest. I don't have a direct line to God like Mark Sayers and others. Um, and actually, I mean that in a serious way, um, but... You know, so I don't get an email in King James English, thou shalt talk about this. But to the best of my ability to discern, um, this just came to the surface of my heart, and apparently the scripture that we're about to read is one that God has already put on the heart of your church and your leadership. Um, before we get to Psalm 24, when I was about five years old, right before what we would call kindergarten, I don't know what you call it here, I was diagnosed with ADHD. And uh, the doctor wanted to put me on Ritalin, and my parents were a little uneasy about that. And in our church, I grew up in the Bay Area of California, and there was a professor from UCLA in town. And she was a kind of an early pioneer in the field of childhood development and education. And as her ministry at the church, she would offer free consultations for, quote, troubled children, because this was the 80s, and you could still call a child troubled. You can't do that anymore. But um, <laughs> you could when I was a child, and I was troubled. And so... My parents like found out about that and they thought, we have such a child, let us sign him up. And so they signed me up and apparently I don't remember any of this. My mom told me this story a few years ago. I go into the office and I'm, I'm with this professor for an hour or two or whatever for testing. And then she sends me out and she calls my parents in and she basically says, he doesn't have ADHD, he's just bright and wild. And if you drug him and stick him in a classroom all day, you'll crush his spirit. And then she says, you should think about homeschooling him. Now, I, I'm told by the last service that homeschooling is a thing here, and then it comes with a similar stereotype back to where I come from of lots of acne and very little hair product, if any at all. And um, so, uh, any homeschoolers in the room? Any, any fellow? Yes! Own it! Just own it! You know you're way smarter and way less cool than all the people around you, all right? Just own that. Um, so I'm actually about five years older than that kind of stereotype, at least in my country. And I found out recently, it's because in California, it was illegal to homeschool your child. It was quite a controversy. It went to the Supreme Court. It was illegal until 1988, where I was in third grade by then. So my, my dad was a past, is a pastor, and he had Friday, Saturdays off. And so I found out that the reason we were never allowed outside on his day off was because they were afraid they would get arrested and I would get taken away by child services. So, which just, I love that my parents, I've come from a really good home, but my parents are like very kind of suburban, middle class, conservative, like law abiding kind of people. My mom's like very quiet and prim and proper and classy. And I found out they're actually like punk rock anarchists at heart. <laughs> You know, just fight the system kind of thing. Anyway, I say that. All of that is to say, I had this really beautiful childhood, and my most vivid memory of kind of the homeschool life had nothing to do with my education. It was the morning routine, which is very different from my kids' morning routine, which is basically kind of up early, breakfast, make lunch, out the door by seven. Um, there was no bus to catch, there was no lunch to make, and so the mornings were much quieter. And my most distinct memory of my childhood is no matter how early I would get up, my mom was always up before me, and 365 days of the year, I would walk into the living room, and she was sitting there in her chair, the lamp on, reading her Bible, either with kind of an intense look of concentration on her face, or just kind of Bible open in her lap, and 
staring off into space. And it was really obvious to me in my, my little grade schooler mind that she wasn't just reading her Bible or daydreaming, but something else was going on at a much deeper level. And if I were to ask her, Mom, what are you doing? She would just say something to the effect of, and she used this language a lot, oh, I just get up early to seek the face of God. Now, if you think about that language, to seek the face of God, if you grew up in the church or you're familiar with the library of scripture, and particularly the poetry from the book of Psalms, that's not weird language to you. If, you. if you're not, if you're new to the Jesus thing or new to the scriptures, that's weird language. Can we agree? I don't say, like, I'm just here to seek the face of Mark Sayers or whatever, you know? Like, I just don't talk that way. I don't seek people's face. Like, call people up, FaceTime is the closest thing I know. But that language is straight out of the library of scripture. Psalm 24, um, I'm learning a lot about honor back home. And so just as a way of honoring God and the scriptures, would you just stand with me for the reading? Not for the whole time, I promise. Uh, you know, back in the day, rabbis would sit and the people would stand. I'm just saying, we could, we, <laughs> we could bring this back really easy. <laughs> Psalm 24, Holy Spirit, come. Psalm of David. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. The world and all who live in it. For he founded it on the seas and he established it on the waters. Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? The one who has clean hands and a pure heart. Who does not trust in an idol or swear by a false god. They will receive blessing from the Lord and vindication from God their Savior. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, you gates. Be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, you gates. Lift them up, you ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is he, this king of glory? The Lord almighty, he is the king of glory. Take a seat. I just want to talk with you this morning about that kind of fulcrum point in the poem in verse 6. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who, and here's our turn of phrase, seek your face, God of Jacob. But in order to make sense of this, you need just two very simple pieces of backstory. The first is about history, the second is about theology. So let me go on a 10 minute detour. I promise the ADHD is much better, I promise to come back. Um, but just stay with me. First, a little bit of history. With your finger right here, turn to 1 Samuel chapter, I'm sorry, 2 Samuel chapter 6. If you're new to scripture, there's a table of contents at the beginning. But 2 Samuel chapter 6, if you're new to the Bible, is a history book about the story of Israel. And to kind of catch you up, I know you're, you're about to step into a story some of you are familiar with, others of you are not. Israel is at a low point in its history. The Ark of God, which was um, kind of a box, but it was far more than a box. It was the locus point at the time of God's presence. It was the overlap between heaven and earth. And a few decades before, it had been kind of lost in battle with the Philistines and has been brought away. And it was really the loss, not just of a box, it was the loss of God's presence in Israel. And so David now is new to the kingship and his first act as king is to bring the ark back to Jerusalem. But it's not to bring a box back to a building. It's to bring the presence and the goodness of God back to the city and to the nation. And we read this fascinating story. Chapter 6, verse 1. David brought together all the young men of Israel. He and all of them went up to bring from there the ark of God, which is called by the name, the name of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim on the ark, meaning God would rule over Israel and the world from that locus point. They set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill, 
Uzzah and Ahio, sons of Abinadab, were guiding their new cart with the ark of God on it, and Ahio was walking in front of it. Now pause there. If you know anything about Hebrew literature, this is you know over a thousand years before Gutenberg, and so writing is all about economy. It's all about real estate. And there are, for that reason and many others, there are very few details in the Old Testament. It's very rare that you read an adjective in general in the Old Testament. And so whenever you read a detail, you should really stop and pay attention. And then whenever that detail is repeated, you should extra stop and pay attention. And so twice in one paragraph, we read not just that they put the ark on a cart, but that they put it on a new cart. Now, if you were an ancient Israelite and you were hearing this story, you would know immediately what was wrong with that because the Torah was very explicit that the Levites and the Levites only were to carry the ark on their shoulders via poles, and even the poles were not to actually touch the ark, but were to go through rings that were connected to the ark. And if you need a mental picture, just imagine the first Indiana Jones movie, right? Even Steven Spielberg and the Nazis got this part right. And that you don't, you don't touch the ark, that was explicit in the Torah, and you don't put it on a cart, you carry it on your shoulders. But instead we read, they put it on not just a cart, but a new cart which is, if you would imagine, I'm sure much easier to transport it that way, much cooler, it's the new cart from you know, Philistine, the new import, the Audi Z8 or whatever it is. I don't know, this is how you move it. But as the story goes on, that's very important. Look at this, verse five. David and all of Israel were celebrating with all of their might before the Lord with castanets and harps and lyres and tambourines and rattles and cymbals. They're singing, there's music. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nikon, Uzzah reached out and he took hold of the ark of God. Remember, it was very explicit in the Torah not to touch it. Because the oxen stumbled, the Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. Therefore, God struck him down and he died there beside the ark of God. Now again, reading this, you know, as a late modern Westerner, this feels at first glance like another example of the angry deity in the Old Testament kind of way of reading the Bible. But notice the language there, because of his irreverent act. Uzzah was 100% aware that you're not to transport the ark on a cart, you're to carry it on your shoulders. This was a conscious, deliberate decision that he and others made to disobey God in the name of convenience, and compromise with the pagan culture. And he's, you could just notice there's like a lack of the, what we would call the fear of God, which is interesting that language is used. Verse eight, David was angry, he was mad, because the Lord's wrath had broken out against Uzzah, and to this day that place is called Perez Uzzah, or outbreak against Uzzah in Hebrew. David was then afraid of the Lord that day, and he asked himself this question, how can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? There's this phrase that's used all through the Hebrew literature of the fear of the Lord, which often gets kind of explained away by people like us as fear doesn't really mean fear, it just means like wonder and awe, which is a little weird because it says fear. And you know in Hebrew, you know what that word actually means? Fear. <laughs> like, and there is actually a healthy kind of fear. Fear is not all bad. Fear is a signal from your body. God literally wired it into your limbic system to protect you from danger and to help you navigate the world. When you're on a hike and you're walking next to a cliff, you're, you're wonder, awe, beauty, yes, but also fear. There's a healthy kind of fear of you know what happens if you take a wrong step. When you're around a nuclear reactor or a gun or a something dangerous, you're Australians, you don't have guns. I live in America, we have them all over the place, right? When you're around something dangerous, there's a healthy kind of fear. When you're around the creator of the creation, the God who spoke the Andromeda into existence over billions of years of intricate handiwork and artistry, there's a healthy kind of fear. But that was missing in the Israel of David's day until this event. So this fear generated a kind of positive response. Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann notes that the response to this was actually positive, not negative. He writes, when people are no longer awed, respectful, or fearful of God's holiness, the entire community is put at risk. But this question starts to do something good. Take a look at verse 10. David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord to be with him in the city of David. Instead, he took it to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, the ark of the Lord remained in Obed-Edom's house for three months 
and the Lord blessed him and his entire household. How cool is that? It's just like sitting in his garage or something, and he's blessed. We don't even know what that blessing was, but he's blessed by God. Now, King David was told, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and everything he has because of the ark of God. Maybe, David, maybe you were misreading the nature of what God's character is. So David went to bring up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David, Jerusalem, with rejoicing. Like now there's, there's a palpable joy in the air. When those who, those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fatted calf. Now just pause there for a moment. Six steps. So this is the imagery. Now the Levites have the memo, and they carry the ark on the pole, right, on the shoulder, not on the cart. They walk six steps, two, three, four, five, six. Okay, stop, put it down, guys. They build an altar, they make a fire, they then sacrifice two animals. Now, any hunters in the room? Is that a thing down there? I'm plant-based, so I don't have a lot of experience with this. But I'm guessing that to sacrifice a cow is not like a 30-second job. I'm guessing that's like bloody, smelly, hard work, and it takes a little bit of time. They make the sacrifice, and they worship. One, two, three. I would imagine by now it's like four, (laughs) five, six. Put it down, altar, fire, Sacrifice, worship. One, two, three, four, five, six. Stop, that's far. Altar, fire, sacrifice, worship. One, do you know how far it is from Obed-Edom to Jerusalem? It's about 17 kilometers. This would have taken exactly that baby right there. That was a prophetic word out of the mouth of babes. This would, have, this would have been slow, tedious, back-breaking, boring work. Again, not to carry a box back to a building, but to carry the presence and the goodness of God back to a city and a nation that had been estranged from God for many decades, which is why we get to verse 17. They brought the ark of the Lord and they set it in its place, its rightful place with the people of God, inside the tent that David had pitched for, which is like a precursor to the temple. And David sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings before the Lord. More now sacrifices. After he had finished sacrificing the burnt offerings and the fellowship offerings and blessed the people in the name of the Lord, then he gave a loaf of bread, a cake of dates, and a cake of raisins to each person of the whole crowd of Israelites, both men and women, and all the people went to their homes. Now, I read you that story because there's no way to know for sure, but the vast majority of scholars speculate or at least argue that this is the backstory to Psalm 24. That King David wrote the song, then Psalm 24 was originally a song, it was put to music, for this occasion, and that is the song they would have been singing as they were walking through the gates into Jerusalem. Think of the refrain at the end of that. Lift up your heads, you ancient gates, the gates of Jerusalem. Be lifted up, you ain't, look, here comes the ark, here comes David, here comes the crowd singing and dancing and praising God. Lift up, let the king of glory, let the presence and goodness of God come back through the gates into our city and into our nation. This is the most likely story behind Psalm 24. One, two, three, four, five, six. Lift up your gates to that anthem. Now, second piece, theology. Turn back to Psalm 24, if you have that in your lap. Um, The number one question that I get asked as a pastor is really weird. It's not what you would expect. It's not about um, Jesus' teachings on human sexuality or violence in the Old Testament or the nature of scripture or some of the things that I would think would be the most pressing, pressing question on people's minds. The number one question I get is about our prayer that you pray as well, come Holy Spirit. And people ask a lot, like what exactly does that mean? Isn't the Holy Spirit already here? The he, and the answer to that is yes. The Hebrew word is ruach, that we translate as spirit, and it's the same word used for breath or for wind. So come Holy Spirit, isn't that like praying, 
come oxygen or something like that when the oxygen is all around you and already in you. But this prayer is actually a very ancient prayer. It predates John Wimber and the Vineyard Movement or some of our charismatic Anglican friends that have had a a large influence on you and on our church as well back home. Um, The early Christians called it the epiclesis, and they would pray it at least every single week right before the bread in the cup. This is very ancient history stuff, before the Nicene Creed even. As far as scholars of historic theology is what it's called, argue they would pray before they would eat the bread and drink the cup, which early on was a full meal around a table with the community of God. They would pray the epiclesis. They would pray, come Holy Spirit. And, And they were just trying to find language for the felt experience of the Lord's Supper. All they knew early on, this is way before the Catholic stuff and the Middle Ages and transubstantiation, way before all of that. All they knew was when they were eating that bread and drinking that wine, it was different than dinner on Thursday night. Something about that table was different than lunch with coworker Bob on Tuesday. Something about that community was different than other people. Something about that moment even was different to other moments. They were experiencing God in a special and a unique way in that time and in that place and through that experience that they were not in other times and other places and other experiences. And they they did not even really have good language for that other than, yes, come Holy Spirit. We want more of that. Now, what they're getting at is, goes by different names at through different times in church history. Most modern kind of Western theologians would talk about the difference between God's omnipresence and God's manifest presence. It's a pretty simple category. God's omnipresence is just the idea that there is nowhere God is not. Under this rubric of, manifest, of omnipresence, um, what's the main problem in the human kind of lack of felt experience of God's presence is just awareness. So there's a saying in the Christian contemplative tradition, what's missing is awareness. Meaning the problem when we don't feel God's presence is less that God is absent and more it's that we're absent. We're on our phone and we have a great Wi-Fi connection, 5G or whatever. Um, or we're on Netflix, or we're just busy, or we're living in a city, or we're chasing nine kids around, or whatever the thing. We're just, we're not present to the moment. Uh, The Quaker intellectual Douglas Steer said we suffer from interior immigration, (laughs) meaning there's this like interior part of our mind and our heart that's just like gone, like just gone. ADHD is now like a culture, Western worldwide phenomenon, right? Like, it's just gone. We immigrate to another place. We're not here. We're not present. And so most, most contemplative practices are really just about helping your mind as the portal to your soul, to your whole person, come back to the moment, come back to the present, and above all, come back to God, who's not just around you, but who, in the teachings of Jesus, is in you. Literally, Jesus said, I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, and you are in me. Like, we are somehow in Christ, a great working definition of Christian mysticism is just an attempt to experience practically what is true of us theologically. So the New Testament is crystal clear. You are in Christ. A mystic is just somebody who says, I don't wanna just believe that or like write that in a theology test somewhere. I wanna experience that in my day-to-day life. I wanna come aware to the reality that I am in Christ. Now this is, this is omnipresence. The problem is omnipresence doesn't explain a number of things. It doesn't explain what the mystics call the dark night of the soul. Why there are seasons in our spiritual journey where we just don't have that same palpable sense of God's presence. In fact, sometimes there are really hard, dark seasons in our spiritual journey where we get with God, we come to church, we spend time in prayer, and and it feels more like absence than it does even like presence. And the mystics would actually say, this is part of the journey. This is actually a step forward into maturity that actually God is the one doing this, not you, and that God is doing a deep work of freedom and healing in your soul. That's a whole other sermon. Ask Mark about it later. But it doesn't explain that. Manifest omnipresence doesn't explain that. It doesn't explain why sometimes um, we pray for the sick and there's a miracle and they get better. And other times we pray for the sick and a week later they die. 
It doesn't explain why sometimes when we're together as a church, singing or whatever, there's just this real like visceral like sense that God is in the room and like God's presence is here and I feel God's presence. And then there are other seasons where our heart is right, there's not sin in our life, we're here, we're present, our mind is in tune, and there's just not that same sense of God's presence. For that, theologians would argue that there is another aspect that they would call manifest presence. Just meaning that there are times and there are places when God manifests himself, when he he makes himself felt in a way that is more acute than in other times. Dr. Nick Drake, who's a charismatic Anglican friend of mine, did his PhD dissertation on charismatic worship, in particular on kind of the vineyard movement, and basically his driving question was, what's happening when we come together and sing? And when certain people really have some, seem to have some kind of an encounter with God, what is happening in that moment? So I asked him about this, and this is what he said. This is not from his dissertation, this is from his email. Quote, all through this era, all through this era of the church, God is of course omnipresent, but also there are local times and places and spaces where he's actively at work in a particular manifest, tangible, intensified way. This is not merely our more open to him, nor our tuning in to what's already going on, although both of these are happening, but it is also his choice, his momentum, his openness to our particularity in this particular place and in this particular time. And the word picture in Psalm 24 and all through the library of scripture that's used for manifest presence is this imagery of a face that is turned toward you. Now let me just, this is a clumsy attempt, but let me just do my best to explain that anthropomorphic word picture. Um, So let's say, like I I doubt, I I don't think this is a thing for you. Our church has a very high percentage of single people. We're right in the city, real estate's stupidly expensive. So our church is like 67% single or something like that. So what that means is Valentine's Day is always interesting at our church, right? And mostly it's depressing. But but there is love in the air. For every love in the air, there's a whole bunch of other just sad people. But there is love in the air. And almost our entire uh, Bridgetown kids is almost entirely actually not run by parents, almost entirely run by young single people. And I'm telling you, more marriages come out of our kids' ministry than, than Tinder. I mean, it's ridiculous. Well, that's not really saying anything. But um, eHarmony, whatever the equivalent is, I don't know. So many marriages have come out of this thing. So let's say, the hypothetical scenario. You're here this morning. You're single. You decide that you want to get married, so you volunteer for Red Kids. <laughs> and you meet the love of your life. A few months later, you walk down the aisle, you get married. Because you're Christians, we don't wait very long. If we're real Christians, we, we move down the aisle. And um, it's a whole other teaching. Make sure Mark does that teaching at least once, <laughs> at least once a year. Um, but let's say you get married. And let's say in this hypothetical scenario, you're both like off-the-charts extroverts, and you both work from home, and you are literally together 24-7. I mean, you wake up in the morning, you're like, good morning, good morning, I'm not sad, like, you're so happy to be together, and you have your coffee together, and you read the Bible together, and you pray together, and you exercise together, and you walk the dog together, and then you sit next to each other while you do your work, and then you cook dinner together. This, to me, as an introvert, this sounds like hell. (laughs) Like, I have no idea, like, why? But, again, this is a a clumsy analogy. In in this hypothetical scenario, where you are with the love of your life 24-7, you can imagine that there would be a different kind of relational experience when you're just both working. One of you is doing the email, and the other is doing a spreadsheet or whatever, or one of you is cooking dinner, and the other is folding laundry. Then when you are together, and one of you says, hey, and you start to talk to each other, you turn and you face each other, you make eye contact, and you come closer together, and you speak to each other, and you communicate with each other, that would be, you're together the whole time, but there's something unique and special when you draw your attention toward one another in that kind of a loving way. Now again, all metaphors break down, but I think that's something like what's going on, that the difference between omnipresence and manifest presence is something like the difference between shoulder to shoulder time 
and face-to-face time or intimacy time or conversation. And we see both in Psalm 24. Now we're finally ready to kind of work through the psalm. The first two verses are about omnipresence. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it, Australians, Americans, Malaysians, all of us, for he founded it on the seas and he established it on the waters. Like the, the earth is the Lord's. Everywhere we go is God's. There is nowhere God is not. The rest of the psalm is about the manifest presence of God. Verse three, who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? That's a moniker for the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. Who may stand in his holy place, or the holy of holies? That's where the the ark, the locus point of God's presence actually was. Now, pause for a moment. At David's point in the story, that was a rhetorical question, and the answer was the high priest once a year on Yom Kippur. He was the only one who was allowed into the Holy of Holies, and even he was only allowed in once a year. But notice that is not what David says. Verse four, the one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not trust in an idol or swear by a false god, they will receive blessing from the Lord and vindication from God their savior. David is famous for living out the new covenant right in the middle of the old one. If you know anything about theology, David is you know, a thousand years before Jesus' resurrection and his ascension to the right hand of the Father and the coming of the Holy Spirit. The New Testament is very clear that our relationship and our experience of the Holy Spirit is very different from an ancient Israelite. Um, Paul says that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And he also says that the church, this gathering right now, is the temple of the Holy Spirit, meaning God is here. God's literally in your soma, in your body, in who you are inside of you. That, it was not always this way. What we take for granted, we wake up in the morning and read our Bible and do some listening prayer and get a word from God and have a picture of that kind of, that, this is a new, this is a gift. The Spirit is called the gift of God all through the New Testament. It was not this way for an ancient Israelite. But David was anointed by the prophet Samuel, meaning that David's experience of the Holy Spirit was the same as ours. He's living out what would later be true for all Israel, for all non-Israelites, for anybody who calls on the name of the Lord. He's living that out as an advanced sign of what is to come for all people for all time which is why he goes on to, verse six, write this. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who, here's our phrase, seek your face, O God of Jacob. Okay, now we come to really the key idea of this poem. The word seek is bakwash in Hebrew. Can you say that, bakwash? Sounds like you wanna, like I had my first authentic Australian spider experience a few days ago. Do you know that you're famous, by the way, for all your dangerous animals? Do you know that? Like, I've literally, my wife's best friend, who is like wicked smart, very sophisticated person in San Francisco, found out that I was coming to Australia, and <laughs> she was not joking. She said, are, are you sure you should do that? I don't think it's safe. Are, are you, do you know they have more? And she wasn't joking. I'm like, I think I will survive Melbourne. I think, I think I'll be okay, right? But I reached into my backpack a few days ago to get my book, and I just felt this like huge thing on my hand, pulled it out, it was like the size of, I don't wanna, I'm, I need to call my therapist. Um, <laughs> I've officially now, I feel like I know your country from the inside. Out, um, what was I saying? I don't even remember what, I, oh, bequash. It sounds like what you wanna do to that spider, like just bequash it, right? <laughs> but that's not what it means. Um, to bequash can be translated to seek, a great translation, or to search for, or to look for, or to ask for, or to call on, or to find, or to discover, or even to demand, or to to want, or my favorite is to pursue, or to go after. And the word bequash is used all through the Psalms, Psalm 27, I read early this morning. One thing I ask from the Lord, and this only do I bequash or do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord. Again, house of the Lord, the presence and the goodness of God. Not a building, like the actual experience of God's presence. That's the the organizing desire of the poet's life. 
all the days of my life, not just when I'm young and single and have free time, but until the day I die, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord. God is so good, so beautiful. And to bequash him, to seek him in his temple. Hear my voice when I call, Lord. Be merciful to me and answer me. My heart says of you, like this is my deep heart ache. Seek his face. Your face, Lord, I will seek. I will follow that desire. Or Psalm 40, take a look at this. May all who bequash you rejoice and be happy in you. May those who long for your saving help always say the Lord is great. Or Psalm 63, you God are my God. Earnestly, notice that adjective, like earnestly, with passion, with desire, with intentionality, with a, a, a fair bit of zeal, I bequash, I seek you. Because I thirst for you, my whole being longs for you in a dry and a parched land where there is no water. This is desert imagery from a Bedouin poet. It's hard for us to imagine in a rainy city like Portland or Melbourne where we have too much water. I'm like, God, I don't pray. I don't thirst for you like water. You know, so I have to flip it to sunshine in the winter. Like, God, I ache for you like the sun, which I've not been around in three months or whatever. Like, but that's, it's that inner desire, but even more acute because without water we die. It's used by Jeremiah the prophet for the people of God in exile. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and you will find me when you, and I love this phrase, seek me with all of your heart. Not some, not a corner, not a line item on your budget, all of your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. Or Isaiah, come all you who are thirsty, come to the waters, you have no money, come buy and eat. Again, desert imagery. Why spend your money on what is not bread, your labor on what does not satisfy? Meaning why chase after all of these things? Listen, listen to me, don't harden your heart. Eat what is good and you will delight in the richest affair. Give ear, come to me, listen that you may live. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. This language is later picked up on by Jesus in his famous line on the Sermon on the Mount, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Now notice in every single command, and I just read you a few, there are dozens upon dozens upon dozens. And on every single command, in every single example, it's a command. Seek God, pursue God, go after God with all of your heart. When I was a teenager, I picked up A.W. Tozer's beautiful little book, The Pursuit of God. Has anybody in the room read that? It's, if you've not, it's a short read. I think it's actually available now. I think it's public domain, so I think it's available for free on Kindle, Kindle or something like that. Beautiful book. It really gave shape to my um, spirituality through my kind of teenage years and into college in my early 20s. But then I did not read the book for like, I don't know, 15 or 20 years. And just last year, uh, it caught my eye on the shelf, and I felt like I should read it. And I thought, you know, it's been a long time. I was young and more zealous when I read it, and A.W. Tozer's a little grumpy, and I, I probably won't like it that much anymore. And I just about started weeping when I read through it again. And this is from the opening chapter. He writes this. To have found God and still to pursue him is the soul's paradox of love. Scorned indeed by the too easily satisfied religionist, but justified and happy experience by the children of the burning heart. Come near to the holy men and women of the past, and you will soon feel the heat of their desire after God. They mourned for him. They prayed and wrestled and sought for him day and night, in season and out, and when they found him, the finding was all the sweeter for the long-seeking. I want to deliberately encourage this mighty longing after God. The lack of it has brought us to our present lowest state. Complacency is a deadly foe of all spiritual growth. Acute desire must be present or there will be no manifestation of Christ to his people. He waits to be wanted. Too bad that with many of us he waits so long, so very long, in vain. Does that resonate at all with your heart and that of the community? Um, you know, our churches, I think, have more in common than just rain and good coffee and a podcast with Mark and I. 
and I can't speak for your church at all, and this is just my second time here, but I know at least for us back home that we really see our church as kind of the blend of two church traditions, the contemplative and the charismatic, which um, often, I think we have a slide for this, often present very different at first glance. So if you think about the contemplative tradition, um, it's really more about the daily discipline of like every morning I do this, I have my liturgy or my prayer practice or my breathing prayer or Jesus, whatever it is. Whereas the charismatic is more about the experience, it's more spontaneous, it's more like very high P on the Myers-Briggs, if you know that. It's like, it's not a lot on the schedule or they're like, what's God going to do in the moment? The contemplative is more about kind of time in the quiet and more time alone, whereas the charismatic is more boisterous and noisy. Let's get together as a group of people and let's sing. The contemplative is a little bit more individualistic or at least more introverted, and the charismatic is more communal. It's more something that we do together. The contemplative um, tends to appeal a little bit more to the intellectual, to kind of that mind and that kind of cerebral way that we engage with God, whereas the charismatic is more like in touch with its body and its sensory input and its emotions and really the feeling of God's presence. And the contemplative is really, really there's a high value for just the peace of God's presence, for kind of resting in the love of God and letting the love of God come to rest in us, what Jesus called abiding. And, you know, the charismatic tradition is, yes, but more about passion, more like stir up a passion in our heart, like keep us alive, keep the fire burning kind of language. And, you know, a lot of times people think of these as two very different church traditions. I would argue that they are the two more similar in all of church history. They're actually both built around the exact same theology. They both have a high value for manifest presence. They both have the same end goal, encounter. They're both not satisfied with ideas and images about God or even feelings of God. They want to actually experience God. And they will do whatever it takes, get up early, fast, pray, spend a night or a week at a monastery, fly to Bethel, whatever it takes to encounter God's presence, to seek, in the language of the Psalms, to seek his face. Because whether you are practicing silence and solitude, or reading an Anglican liturgical prayer, or singing to rock and roll at the top of your lungs in the name of Jesus with hundreds of other people, whatever your personality is, the goal is the same. Really, these two, I think, traditions say more just about personality and preference. The odds are that you will gravitate toward one just based on how you're wired. Um, you know, if I were to, this is dangerous, but if I were to give the charismatic a Myers-Briggs type, I would say it's an ESFP, right? And the contemplative is an INTJ. So most of you know, don't know what that means, and those of you that know, you're obsessed with it and need to stop thinking about it. But <laughs> just meaning, if you're more introverted, you're more of a thinker, you're a little bit more logical, and you like some fair bit of structure in your life, you're going to prefer contemplative practice over singing the same line and the same song for 15 minutes, right? And if you're more like in the moment and spontaneous and you're in touch with your body and you're in touch with your feelings and you like people and you like noise and stimuli and activity, then you're just gonna gravitate more toward the charismatic. That's not bad at all. Preferences are not a bad thing. When preferences become God, that's a problem. But you know, preferences are the starting point of our spiritual journey, but they're not the middle or the end. Robert Mulholland, um, if you're not familiar, has this beautiful book. He's dead now, but it's called Invitation to a Journey. It's the best all-in-one-place book I'm aware of on spiritual formations. Very good. It's a, on a short list of books that I read every single year. I just reread it a few weeks ago. And um, he makes, he actually has a whole section on Myers-Briggs and personality theory and spiritual formation and just makes the point that we all come to Jesus with our personality, with our kind of the way we're wired from the inside out. But in order to become people of love, we actually have to expand our capacity to interact with God, other people, and the world in ways that don't come naturally to us. So for example, for me, I'm like a very high J on the Myers-Briggs, which means I plan everything. Like before my day, any people in the room? This not, we're always the minority, but my one. And you're a musician too, you're like a, Walking, this beautiful, I love it. <laughs> but like, I plan everything. Like, and I love rhythm and routine. I just feel, I feel, I feel at ease when I have a good, like all of that stuff. And so for me, 
I really have to grow in my capacity for spontaneity because life doesn't go as planned, ever. Particularly if you're a parent, it never goes as planned. C.S. Lewis once said something to the effect of how you respond to an interruption is who you really are, which if that's not convicting, you must not be a parent or just not be self-aware or not have any friends, or I don't know. <laughs> but like, ah, oh, I so often respond to an interruption with annoyance or agitation or I brush over it or I move past. If I'm going to become a person of the spirit and a person of love, it's not bad to plan my life out, but I need to really be open to what God is doing moment by moment by moment. Others of you, the journey is the opposite direction. You should think about a morning routine and a schedule. <laughs> and like God could really powerfully do something in your life through a thing called planning, ask Mark. Um, <laughs> sorry, I say that not to make light. I say that just to make, this is all to say, we start with a personality, we start with our preferences, but if we're going to become people of love, we actually have to hold the tension in our own mind and body, and we have to let Jesus do a deep work in us to grow us through the contemplative and the charismatic, through time alone and time together, through our mind and through our body and our emotions, through the, the, the morning routine, the discipline, the duty, and through the what is God on about in this moment. Because these two things together, as we just set our mind and our body before God, and we let God do the deep work in us of healing and freedom and transformation in order to make us into people of love. We need both and. All that to say, the very simple, I'm just about done, the very simple word that I just wanna pass on to you at Red this week is just that phrase, seek his face. You know, it's so easy to just go through the motions with God particularly if you've been following Jesus for any length of time. And, and that's not all bad, but it's so easy to come to church every Sunday, to read your Bible every morning, to show up for your small group or whatever, and to do the right things, which are not bad, but not to seek the face of God. But you can read the Bible every day and not seek the face of God. You can come to church every week and sing and not seek the face of God. You can pray, dear Jesus, please, whatever. I don't know why we say dear Jesus. We're not writing him a letter, but I don't know where that started, but it started somewhere. We can pray and not seek the face of God. But every single practice or spiritual discipline or religious activity is all a means to an end, and the end is the encounter of God. A friend of mine, John Tyson, who is uh, also Australian, actually, was with our church recently, and we had a great conversation, and he said this one thing that I can't stop thinking about. He said, you know what we need right now at this time in church history is a sustained urgency. And he said, if all you have is urgency, like the kingdom of God, we have to advance, we have to share the gospel, we have to invite people to Alpha and do justice, and we're on the decline of Western civilization, we need to pray and intercede for our city. If that's all you have, you burn out. Make it for six months or a year or whatever, and then you're done, you flame out. But if all you have is sustainability, like emotional health and Sabbath and rest and all this good stuff, then you're irrelevant. You make very little difference in your city or your nation or your time. We need a sustained urgency. We need a, a both. And I really gravitate in particular the last few years toward Sabbath and slowing and contemplative practices and emotional health. And I just, so much life there. But still, all of that is a means to an end. The end is to become people of love in the kingdom of God. What we need is a sustained urgency. We need to seek the face of God. And for you to do this, and God has really raised your church up for such a time as this, in your city and in your nation. You play that key kind of David in, in Samuel 6 kind of role, that Psalm 24 kind of role to carry the presence of God and the goodness of God to your city and to your nation. That is, that is on your shoulders. God has put that calling, that responsibility, and that joyful opportunity on your shoulders to carry the presence and the goodness of God with you into this city and into this nation and beyond. But to do this, you will have to fight off the perennial twin temptations for every culture and every generation of compromise and of complacency. You, there, nobody gets out of that fight. Nobody, I don't care what your personality is or your Myers-Briggs or how passionate of a person you are, nobody gets out of that fight. We all have to fight off a 
just the, the complacency of convenience, which our entire world, and particularly the digital age, is designed to make everything in life easy, which is why there's so much neurosis in the world, because life is not easy. Not even life with God is easy. We have to fight off these twin things. David is aware of that. That's why he writes in verse four, the one who has clean hands and a pure heart. I love that word imagery there. Clean hands is kind of about external holiness, what you do with your body. There's no immorality or injustice with your body. Pure heart is more about internal, maybe that's not a helpful bifurcation, but internal holiness. The heart in Hebrew literature is this trifecta of your thinking and your feeling and your desire. It's this inner architecture of your being. It's what you think about, what you feel, and it's what you want. And Jesus later said, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. I don't like this. I'm guessing you don't like this, but there's no way around the fact that there is a direct link of causation. There is a reciprocal relationship between our level of holiness and our level of experience of the Spirit of God. That's not because we're earning God's favor or love. Of course not, we have that. It's not because God's like grumpy or not compassionate. It's not because when we mess up, we have to be really good for a month to earn our way back into God's good graces. None of that. But there is something there is a direct link between how holy you are and how much you will likely experience God's presence. There's just no way around that. That's why ancient Christians would call for what they called consecration. We're about to, I don't know if you guys follow the church calendar, we actually don't back home, but we're two weeks away from Lent, which is for hundreds of years, followers of Jesus across the world, for the 40 days leading up to Easter would give up something, normally not something bad, they would give up meat or wine or sugar, and now it's like Instagram. You know you're like Lent for the digital age when it's like, I'm giving up Twitter or whatever, which is also just called living well. Um, <laughs> but uh, whatever you want to call it. And they would give up something in order to really just consecrate themselves to God. To consecrate is just to, to really dedicate yourself at a very serious and intentional way to something higher than your own survival and pleasure to God himself. And so I think there could be an invitation for some of you, even this morning, to consecration, to really free yourself. Um, a, a buddy of mine, Tyler Staten, was calling his church last year at, at, uh, during Lent to this like, kind of radical call to fasting. And I was asking him about it, and he said, you know, in order to minister to the people of Brooklyn where he lives, I think we have to free ourselves of the idols of Brooklyn. And I think, this, that, I think that's a principle across the world. In order to minister to the people of Melbourne, you have to free yourself from the idols of Melbourne. Whatever those idols are, if it be pleasure, if it be hedonism, if it means autonomy, if it means nobody tells me what to do, if it just means entertainment and sugar and alcohol, whatever it is, there's something where you have to free yourself of that in order to live as a prophetic witness of the presence and the goodness of God to your city and beyond. And we do that just through consecration in small acts and in large. So that's really all I have to say. I just wanna call you to consecrate yourself in a fresh and a new way to seek the face of God. Let's stand together and pray.